uh, what it is that God is doing in his word for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we've said it already this morning, to seek your presence continually. We long, we long to be before you, to be with you, for you by your spirit to be in us, teaching us. Lord, uh, we pray that you would teach us by your word. We thank you that you give us space to be learners, to ask questions, that you love to teach, that you're patient and kind. So we pray you would do that this morning, that you would uh, open our eyes to see you, that you would give us new desires, new passions, but also, Lord, that you would free us from the many uh, lies we've been taught. Do these things by your Spirit and in your kindness. In Jesus' name, amen. I had a friend um, who I met through a summer camp I used to work at. Uh, and she had grown up outside of Portland in a non-Christian home. And uh, by high school, she had begun uh, dealing drugs, selling weed primarily. And was doing quite well for herself, making lots of money. Uh, if you didn't know, it's a very lucrative business. And uh, she thought she was doing just fine. But then one day, uh, it turns out that the FBI had been building a case against her. So they showed up at her school and arrested her and uh, sent another officer to go to her house and knock on the door and told her parents everything that she'd been doing for the last six months to a year. Uh, in God's mercy, she was a juvenile, so most of her sentence was community service and uh, house arrest. And as you can imagine, uh, her parents were not thrilled with her. <laughs> to find out these things from the FBI, uh, to have them come to your door, was not their favorite thing. So as part of her punishment, they gave her uh, a stack of books to read uh, so that she would become a better moral person. Remember, these people don't know the Lord. So everything from like Moby Dick to Grapes of Wrath, but included in that stack was the Bible. She started reading uh, the Gospel of Matthew and then on to Mark, and then midway through the Gospel of Luke, uh, she was a changed person. She had come to know God himself and believe in his word. Mind you, she didn't know a single Christian at the time. She's not in a Bible study. She's just sitting in her room because she'd been dealing drugs and her moralistic parents made her read the Bible and she comes to know God through reading this book. It's a wild thing. Uh, so how does this happen? Uh, it's not obvious that the best way to know God is from a book. Why, why not feel your way towards God? Why not uh, go out to the mountains? But the Bible and Christian, Christian theology and Christianity has always insisted that you can read this book and actually know the one who is the great reality behind all creation. You can read this book and come to know the transcendent God, the God who made heaven and earth by his power and yet who outstrips heaven and earth. You can come to know him through a book. It's wild. It's a very strange and powerful claim. And that's exactly what we want to think about today, knowing God from Scripture, through Scripture. And we're going to take it in three points. Uh, the first is, why do we know God through a book? That is to say, why is a book involved? The second, how do we come to know God through this book? What's the process? And then thirdly, what kind of knowers are we? What kind of knowledge do we get from this whole process? So first... Why do we know God through a book? 
Uh, the short answer is that God reveals himself in covenants, and we'll unpack that here in just a second. Uh, words from other people are something that many of us have learned to distrust, right? Uh, so the idea of a book teaching us who God is kind of feels like all the other times people have used words to try and uh, manipulate us or get control over us. Uh, talk is cheap, we say. For many Christians as well, if we're honest, uh, there's a lot of passages in Scripture that we actually uh, struggle to believe. We hear the words and say, yes, I'm sure it's true, but it doesn't ring true for me. I don't trust it. Why is that? That is to say that even if we want to believe the words, it's often difficult to trust them in the face of trouble. Well, what's our other option? If we uh, don't want to trust anyone's words, what's our other option? Uh, the fact is, is that we will do a lot of harm if we move through life with a constant suspicion, always seen through everyone's words, always seen beyond them and through everything and everyone. Imagine doing this uh, to a friend who says, uh, hey, let's hang out, let's go biking this weekend, right? We want to go biking this weekend. And because you are determined to never trust words, you read and scan and scour that email for gaps or cover-ups or trying to discern their real motive to hurt or use you, and you're always trying to get behind it. And so you say things like, I think this person's trying to say I'm fat, you know? <laughs> they want me to get back on the bike. What are they trying to say about me? Or, uh, I guess they don't want to get to know me. They just want to use me for entertainment and doing fun things. You, you see the, the ridiculousness of that posture. We will never get to know anyone truly so long as we are unwilling to trust their words. In being suspicious of them, perhaps you become quite confident that you've figured out their true motives. But of course, I doubt if anyone would say that you actually knew that person. That is to say, uh, living out of a place of constant suspicion does not help you know anyone, however confident you might be. But if we disregard people, people's words entirely, we can only make up things about them. So we can't escape trusting and relying on people's words about themselves. But also, at the same time, we can't trust everyone's words, right? Uh, the fact is that it would be foolish for you to trust me if I said, hey, uh, lend me $5,000. I'm good for it. No, I'm not going to sign anything. No, I'm not going to allow anyone to witness our interaction. I'm just going to make you a verbal promise, and I want you to give me the cash. Right? That's generally seen as a bad idea to give someone a chunk of change with uh, no consequences, no written agreement, nothing that could hold me accountable. You see, the fact is that we are meant to trust people's words when they have already bound themselves by their own promise. That is to say, uh, they have to bind themselves, put consequences on themselves for us to begin trusting them in the first place. And that is exactly what the scriptures are. We trust God's words because he gave them to us as a part of his covenant. And I just want to think about what that word means. We talk about covenants a lot, and the Bible talks about covenants. And I want you to know that a covenant is not a casual promise. You know, I, I make casual promises to my kids all the time. Yeah, yeah, we'll go to the park this afternoon. That'd be great. Uh, those are casual promises. 
or things that are vaguely implied. God does not make vaguely implied promises to try and coerce us or gain our trust. A covenant is a solemn legal promise sworn by oath and sealed with blood. In fact, the way people would make covenants back in the Old Testament was like this. Uh, two people making a covenant, they would tell the story of their relationship up until that point, right? Here's how we came into relationship. Here's the good things I've done for you. Here's the good things you've done for me. And then they'd reiterate the promises they were making to each other, and I promise to whatever, uh, never you know, go onto your property or whatever it is, and what those promises require of them. And they do all of this in front of witnesses, and then they'd kill an animal. And they'd cut it in pieces. And they'd... Uh, so after they rehearsed their promises and their requirements, they would make this little pathway. They'd cut the animal into pieces, and they'd make a, a, a little pathway that they could walk between. So as they rehearsed these promises, they walk between death on either side. Bloody death. And what they're functionally saying is to each other, what happened to this animal bull or ox or whatever it is, will happen to us if we break this covenant. It's a big deal. That's a big promise. Uh, that's basically the outline of the book of Deuteronomy, by the way. Uh, it's a whole covenant document. So when God makes a promise to Abraham, when he's about 75 years old, you actually can read this scene. It's in Genesis 15. He tells Abraham, you will have a child, even though he's clearly past the age where people have children. And God has Abraham set up these three animals cut in pieces with the path between them. But then, instead of Abraham and God walking through these pieces together, God himself walks between the pieces alone. That is to say that God enters into this covenant, this solemn legal promise, entirely on Abraham's behalf. He makes promises and swears to his own hurt that he will keep them. That is the kind of covenant that God makes with us. So let me read Hebrews 6 to you. Starting in verse 13, we'll read through uh, verse 18. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having waited patiently, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. The writer of Hebrews knows that, in fact, it's very difficult to trust God's words. And so when God makes promises, he takes the curse on himself first before he ever asks us to believe. You see, the entire book of the Bible is a book of God's covenant promises. It's the story of God's covenants. Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David, all the way up into Je until Jesus, who is the, the crowning covenant. And God knows exactly 
how untrustworthy people's words are. He knows that actually we have every reason in the world to be skeptical about people's promises. And so what he does as he makes promises to us is he guarantees his promises with his own blood. This is the whole point of the gospel. Jesus sheds his blood to seal the covenant. You see, the promises of the, of the Bible are not made lightly. They're made at great cost to Jesus himself. And he has already taken the cost on himself. And so when we come to Scripture, we're not coming to uh, grand ideas or vaguely inspiring thoughts. We are coming to promises sealed with Jesus' blood. But someone might say at this point, well, I see what you're saying, but you, you can't put God in a book, right? Uh, when you say we know God through a book, you are really putting God in a box. And he, you know, he can be whatever he wants to be. feels very free. And of course, uh, you know what? I would actually totally agree. God is free to do whatever he likes. He is not bound to speak to us at all. He's not bound to make us or to love us. But here's the beauty of the gospel. In God's utter freedom, he freely and lovingly bound himself to promises. We do not put God in a box by holding to Scripture. God himself has bound himself to his own promises when he wrote them down. And so if we would know God, we actually have to pay attention to the things that he has made oaths about. We have to study the words that he has bound himself to. We can't ignore the things he has told us. Because apparently, they mean an awful lot to him. So to ignore his words is to ignore him. But, clearly, to study the text is not enough. Uh, you've all been around people who know the scriptures in and out, or who know lots of stuff about God, and yet it turns out that you can study God's gracious covenant promises without ever actually knowing God himself. In fact, Jesus says this. Look at John 5, printed for you here. This is what Jesus rebukes the Pharisees about. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So, how do we come to know God through this book? And that's our second point. Our first point, why a book? Why a book? The answer is that God has made solemn promises, ones that we can trust and rely on. The second question is, how do you actually come to know God through a book? What, what's that even look like? Is it, uh, how does that process happen? Studying and mastering words is, is good. It's really good, actually, to memorize Scripture, but it's never enough. Uh, and that was true for the Pharisees and scribes. It was actually true for Jesus' disciples. They were around Jesus. They ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner with the guy for three years. And even at the end of those three years, they were still fairly confused at times. Right? They still do things that at the end of the Gospels, you're kind of thinking, you guys don't get it, do you? Being near Jesus did not mean that they knew him. So how does someone come to know who he truly is? Let me read to you uh, Matthew 11, 25 through 27. And that's the third scripture printed in your bulletin. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, 
Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. It turns out that God actually hides himself from our wisdom, from the powers of our understanding. He does not reward the proud mind with himself. He actually withholds himself from the mind that's proud. So God, it turns out, is actually intent on revealing himself to the lowly, the humble, even those who are put down as little children. Uh, Old English preachers had a way of talking about this. They said, uh, God's word is like the sun, and it has the same heat wherever it goes, right? It's producing the same heat, consistent. But the human heart is a thing that's different. It's either like ice or like clay. Uh, Clay, when it has the heat of the Word of God applied to it, what does it do? It hardens. It cracks. But ice, however, melts and softens when the heat of God's Word is applied to it. So the proud human mind is like that clay. It hardens. It bristles. It's offended. It scoffs. The humble human mind is like ice. Its edges soften. It receives the word and is willing to be changed and challenged by it. And that's because knowing God through Scripture is an act of grace by God's Spirit. It's a result of the Spirit working in Scripture, but also in particular, working in our hearts. You see, our minds and hearts are bent so that we can't know God on our own. We can't know God by ourselves. Uh, That's actually true in our relationships with uh, parents and friends and spouses, right? Uh, I can be married to someone for 10 years, for 11 years now, and still be learning things that they've been telling me for 10 years. I can be in a relationship with someone for, for ages and only after five years begin to finally hear them. Well, if that's true in our relationships with other people, how much more with God himself? And so the thing that the Spirit does is it awakens our mind and enlivens our heart so that we can finally hear. He changes our heart so that we can hear Him. God will only be known from a posture of humility. He will not let you in otherwise. And that's why we pray before we read. Because prayer is the expression of humility. It's the expression of powerlessness of dependency. Psalm 119 verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things of your law. Verse 169. Let my cry come before you O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. So how does the Spirit work this posture of humility in us? Well the way of knowing God is one of discipleship of following him. And that leads to our final point. So, so far we've touched on why and how do we know God through a book. And now we're going to move on third point. What kind of knowers are we? What kind of knowledge do we get? And the answer is that we know as disciples. We are disciples. That's the kind of knowers we are. 
Matthew 11 continues. After Jesus says that he reveals the Father to the humble children, he says in verse 28, you know these words. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. An ox is something that takes a yoke. Uh, in fact, you put two oxen together, right? You have the big piece of wood that goes over their shoulders and it yokes them together so that they walk and work together. So Jesus finishes talking about God revealing himself to the humble by talking about coming along with him, following with him, in fact, joining in his work. Being discipled in a word. First thing we have to recognize about this is that it's a very different model of knowing than most of us are used to. Right? Uh, coming to know God by trusting in His words and a humble reliance and being led by His Spirit, being discipled, is a very different approach to knowledge than what we are taught happens or we're supposed to think happens in a laboratory or a classroom where information is presented to us and we write it down dutifully and digest it and then come to conclusions. I want to talk about this a little bit more at length here. Uh, Lewis, uh, C.S. Lewis, has a great little piece called Meditation in a Tool Shed. It's about two pages long. You should read it today. It'll take you ten minutes. Uh, it's phenomenal. But I'm going to read the intro to you uh, from it. He says this. I was standing today in the dark tool shed, and the sun was shining outside, and through the crack at the top of the door there came a sunbeam. From where I stood, that beam of light, with the specks of dust floating in it, was the most striking thing in the place. Everything else was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam, not seeing things by it. Then I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly, the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed, and above all, no beam. Instead, I saw, framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside, and beyond that, 90-odd million miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. But this is only a very simple example of the difference between looking at and looking along. A young man meets a girl. The whole world looks different when he sees her. Her voice reminds him of something he has been trying to remember all his life, and ten minutes of casual chat with her is more precious than all the favors that all other women in the world could grant. He is, as they say, in love. Now comes a scientist and describes this young man's experience from the outside for him, it is all an affair of the young man's genes and recognized biological stimulus. The difference, that is the difference between looking along the sexual impulse and looking at it. Do you catch the distinction there between looking along and looking at? We come to know God truly by looking along, not by looking at him. The difference between looking along and looking at is the difference between a classroom and discipleship. 
Looking along is what the Bible calls discipleship. And what Jesus advocates as the way to knowing God is looking along, walking alongside Him, learning from Him. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, the problem for us is that we're used to speaking about knowing things as mastery. Looking at, mastering the facts, the conjugations, the catechisms, the history, the periodic table, and all those things are good, but emphasizing the mastery of facts as what really counts is like saying what really counts about bike riding is knowing how to fix a bike and not riding it. Right? It's backwards. Mastering the facts isn't even the doorway into true learning. It's a symptom. It's a natural consequence. It's a gross perversion to exchange a natural consequence of knowing for the actual essential act of learning. So you could potentially uh, learn how to ride a bike by studying the physics behind it, right? You could read the physics and learn about uh, the gyroscopic effect and how that allows you to balance and traction and uh, you know, converse forces. And then once you master all those facts, however, when you actually approached a bike and got on the saddle, your head would be swimming trying to do these calculations, trying to figure out exactly how much force to apply to which pedal at which time and uh, what to do and how to turn. And uh, we would all step back and watch you trying to apply the facts while you tremble and weave and eventually topple over the handlebars. No one would say you know how to bike because you know the fact that other people know how to bike. That's all it is to master the facts. When you learn how to ride a bike, you come to know about the momentum, balance, taking corners, and all the physics. You do master those things. But that's never the doorway. The doorway to learning is trying. Crashing. You learn in your body. One big problem with acting like knowing is becoming a master of the facts is that it doesn't leave any room for doubt or confusion. And this robs us of all the fun of learning. There's no doubt or confusion. Where's the fun? Uh, if I can't feel any doubt, then why in the world would I ever be curious? Right? If I uh, am never supposed to be confused, you know what will happen? I'm going to ask really boring, boring questions. Because if we're not confused about anything, we're not willing to ask the hard questions, the good ones. Knowing how to ride a bike is a knowing alongside doubt. It's a true knowing, but doubt and confusion are there the whole time. And I'll just tell you, I, I bike a lot. The doubt and fear of biking is often the most exhilarating and inspiring part. That's why mountain biking is fun. You don't know if you can take that route. Well, you're going to try. This is uh, what my boys feel all the time. If I never let them try anything that was scary or that they felt doubtful that they could take on, they would get bored. But as we come face to face with our doubts and fears and the steep trails with a couple bumpy roots in it, my boys light up. You think I can do this? Yeah, I think you, I think you might crash, but I think you can try. They are scared, but even then, even in the midst of the doubts and the confusion, I'm with them. And when they do nail it, we're all excited together. You see, doubt and confusion are actually the doorway for learning. 
doubt and confusion are actually the doorway for learning, not something to hide from. And that's just as true of bike riding as it is of botany or geography and of God himself. So you'll never actually care that a western hemlock is the state tree of Washington until you actually go and touch the tiny little pine cones that are very small and you see the difference in the leaves and you try and climb. They're hard to climb. Doug firs and cedars are much better. Personal experience. And this is actually why in our kids' workshop we have kids crack open the Bible and read it and feel it and get confused by it. Because I want them to see the words in the Bible and to begin asking questions and figure out, hey, I can read this, I can understand it, and I can even be confused by it, and that's okay. There's place for me to be a learner. We want to expose kids, in fact, all of ourselves, to God's Word with prayer. And we know that there, in that exposure, He will prompt them and us to ask questions, to have doubts, to be confused by passages. And we want that because that's precisely where they are most ready, most curious to learn about the God that they have heard about from their childhood. And in fact, the same is true for you and me. Once we allow ourselves to be confused, to admit our doubts, all of a sudden, we will find God's Word much richer, our attention much more piqued. Knowing God does not remove all doubt and confusion. Rather, trusting in His covenant words, we can enter doubt and confusion with confidence that He will be with us and lead us to a place of understanding. We can know God truly. We can actually learn things about Him. Why do we think, though, when it comes to teaching the Bible or coming to know God, that it's somehow different? We're embarrassed to admit our doubts. It's hard. It's actually hard to admit to other Christians, you know, I've been really afraid that the Lord's not really there. Why is that? Well, I think there's good reason. Um, And it's worthwhile just to pause on this for a second. We have a hard time believing Scripture precisely because we are afraid to get on the bike and trust God at all. We don't know the things Scripture is talking about because we haven't been willing to risk the saddle. And so we stick to describing the physics of the whole thing because, frankly, we don't want to crash because it's something we're afraid we can't master. And first off, I just want to say, I think a lot of us actually have good reason to not risk the saddle, right? Uh, You have been betrayed by people who have asked you to trust and risk before. No doubt every one of us has experienced that. You've tried the saddle before and you were harshly criticized for crashing, for saying something stupid, for getting it wrong as if there was no room to be a learner. But I want you to to tell you today that, in fact, the Scripture is alive because God Himself is a kind teacher, because He walks patiently with His students, because He receives their questions and opens their minds. But the other side of this is that the fact that many of us don't trust, don't understand the Bible and find it boring is because we have avoided trying the things it's talking about. We don't know God as a provider because we would never depend on Him or anyone else. We don't know God as merciful because we are afraid to admit we're wrong. 
We don't know the full, rich power of God in the Bible because we have not run in the way of his commandments. So listen, if we, if we really, as a congregation, decided we will engage the Lord in all the things he says. We are going to engage the poor neighbors. We are going to engage the fatherless, the foster children, the orphans. We are going to engage and be with the elderly. I think we would actually begin to see just how kind and tender of a shepherd God is. We would understand the imprecatory psalms, the psalms where people call down for God's cursing and justice and judgment, if we were out in the muck and coming face to face with the evil in the world. If you were in relationships with people who have been sold into prostitution, you would understand the imprecatory psalms. Right? Once we actually go out into the places where the Lord is telling us to go, all of a sudden the rest of the Bible makes a whole lot more sense. If we were persecuted and willing to be, every New Testament book would come alive to us. You see, doing the Word is fundamental to learning the word. Getting in the saddle. We can't know him from the bleachers. We have to risk and go out on a limb with him. But if you risk, if you would risk following him, you'll find untold riches in his word and in, in the Lord himself as he shows up. I promise. I've staked my life on it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you teach us through words, through things that we can study and return to, that uh, our forgetful minds can hold on to. We thank you, Lord, that you are a gracious teacher, that you love to walk along patiently and kindly with us. Lord, we pray that you would shepherd us through our many doubts and confusion that they would not overwhelm us, but that you would guide us through them. Lord, we thank you that you instruct sinners in your way, that you are merciful. And so we pray that you would do that now, even as we uh, come now to pray to you and seek your face. We pray that you would draw us near to you. In Jesus' name, amen.